Hello, I'm Rob Beckett. And I'm Josh Whittacombe. Welcome to Parents in Hell, the show in which Josh and I discuss what it's really like to be a parent, which I would say can be a little tricky. So, to make ourselves, and hopefully you, feel better about the trials and tribulations of modern day parenting, each week we'll be chatting to a famous parent about how they're coping. Or hopefully how they're not coping. And we'll also be hearing from you, the listener, with your tips, advice and, of course, tales of parenting woe. Because let's be honest, there are plenty of times when none of us know what we're doing. Hello, you're listening to Parenting Hell with... James, can you say Rob Beckett? Rob Beckett. And can you say Josh Whittacombe? Josh Whittacombe. Good boy. There we go. Is that North America? That is the Dublin. I'm going to give up this game. (laughs) I don't think my ears work. Sending an intro from my son James, who's two. James is a proud big brother to Tom, and your show has gotten me through many night feeds with both babies, as well as a lot of long walks with James when he would only nap in a moving buggy. Oh, those poor parents. Oh, I used to. Have you ever, did you ever go out and drive? Have you ever driven a baby yeah, yeah. around to get to sleep? Yeah. I've done that a few times. Oh, oh my God. Because it gets to a point where, like, no one's sleeping in the house. I just said to Lou, go to sleep. I will happily just drive for an hour. Yeah. With a podcast on, just yeah. drive around the streets of London. What's your route in that situation? Well, what's difficult is that I, what I would do is go down to the M25 and do a couple of junctions because do a lap they, of London, <laughs> do a fall over the bridge. No, but I'd um, on the slow because where where I live, there's like slower roads and loads of traffic lights and then like speed bumps. But if you go the other way towards M25, oh, you can I get see. like longer, yeah, faster roads. And you can cruise at around 60 yeah. on the motorway and then in the slow lane and then the, the baby will go to sleep. Yeah, and then I'd come back and then park on the drive, but then you can, as soon as I turn the engine off, yeah, they'd, what are we talking about? Yeah, I've, got a drive, I've got a driving problem, Rob. Oh, have you? Yeah, so uh, we're going to the southwest this weekend. We're going to Cornwall this weekend. Lovely. Oh, yeah, because you've got a bit of time off at the moment, haven't you? Well, ish. Ish. To give you an idea, yep. two weeks in. Friday last week. I've got my six weeks off. Obviously, I'm doing stuff like this and doing various things. Yeah. Friday of week two was the first day I had to do anything. <laughs> Admin wise. So, so when you say you've got six, basically, when we say we've got six weeks off, we're still doing podcasts and stuff, but no big filming or touring. No. And then there's been two bank holidays. Uh, childcare yeah. fell through a couple of days. Various things have happened yeah. leading to Friday. Yeah, I don't think we should call time off when we're not filming a television show or um, doing an arena tour because we, there's still work no, to be done, isn't there? still work to be done. There's still work to be done. I've got meetings tomorrow, etc. Right, yeah. anyway. Sorry. So we're going down to Cornwall and then um, Blur have got their four warm-up dates in small venues. Oh, brilliant. Where are they doing them? Yeah, Colchester, which I can't go to because I'm in Cornwall. And then they're doing Eastbourne on Sunday. Oh, lovely. You're working, right? Uh, yep, radio too. Yeah, thought so. Every day. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. worked. Every, I'm working every day in May. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> every, so, every day. <laughs> so we've got. I was like, well, we're coming back from Cornwall that day. Maybe we could just go to Eastbourne, and then we've got two spare tickets. Get people who can drive. So d- does Rose want to go? Yeah. So you're you're going to drive back from Cornwall on Sunday? No, no, no. We're getting the train back. We get the train down to Cornwall. So you get train from Cornwall back to London. How long's that take? No, Cornwall to Eastbourne, direct. Do you what? know how long it takes? It? No, 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 it's not direct. But I mean, we're not going through London. We're right, okay. Cornwall to Reading, to Gatwick, to Eastbourne. Eight what? hours, ten. Just drive. You're... It's, it's, it's six you... and a half hours are to drive, Are you going with Rob? the kids? 
No. Oh, you're not. T- sorry, you're going. You're going away. Yeah, 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 right, this yeah, has yeah. been. This is. This has been a terrible story. It's been the worst. Time. You've not been clear enough. I'm not listening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, I've got to get a train that's over eight hours long. So right. So what you're doing is someone's got on Sunday night. So you're getting the train for eight hours to Eastbourne. Oh, that'll be fun. Do it. Do you think? And then I've got to find two people that can drive to help to get us home. Oh, because you're never going to get a train back. No. What a life. So you basically, so you've got four tickets to Eastbourne and you yeah. need fr- someone that will drive you back yeah. to East London. Yeah. I reckon I could find someone for you. No, I don't want a stranger. Well, I'll know him. No, I don't want someone you know. My brother Joe would do it. He's just had a kid. It's true. He will, yeah. So that, he's going to be livid now that there's another thing he can't go to. Yeah, exactly. The Tell him I would have taken him. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yes, you need to find some friends that can meet you in Eastbourne that are going to drive back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'll find that. It's a great, that's a great gig if you've got two spare tickets. Eight hours on a train, it feels a lot. Who's your favourite one in the band? Let's not go into it, Rob. Let's not go into it. Am I going for dinner with the drummer beforehand? Let's not go into it. Anyway. Right, is he, is he in the band? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the original lineup, Rob. They're back together. Are you Damon there? What? Your pizza date. Damon, no, he's, he's doing his vocal warm-ups. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I yeah. would love Alex James to be on this show because he's got five kids and one's called Geronimo. Good cheesemaker. Good cheesemaker. He's living his best life. He is living his best life. I'd advise reading his book if you want to. He, he spent a thousand, a million pounds on cocaine and champagne in his um in his day. What? Who, who keeps receipts for that? <laughs> trying to slip that. Yeah, another bag of oh, coke. I'm saying that's cool. Can. It's not cool. It's not cool. He for a period. That's he not was drinking cool. Go on. Two bottles of champagne a day. Oh, bloody hell. God, but his acid reflux was a nightmare. No, he'd, eat, he'd just eat carrots because that was good for his... That would de-acidify it. Well, but what, basically, I once went to... When I worked for an events company, went to a like an event at the St Pancras and we mm. went to the champagne bar and we got free yeah. champagne and yeah. they didn't yeah, feed us. All they gave right. us was these like, bright green sort of posh olives that I imagine you have yeah. from your yeah. deli. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, oh, I drank, I reckon, three bottles of champagne and ate about five bowls of olives, came home and I was sick and it was the frothiest, greenest thing I've ever <laughs> oh seen. Oh my God. It oh was God. mental. It, or it looked like it sucked off the Incredible Hulk. And the price of that sick, the price of oh, that sick. The money literally down the drain and all so that was when I had a little, a little, uh, a Sony version of an iPod, tiny little one yeah. that I dropped into the toilet and was sick on top of. Oh no! It's awful. Oh, that was no. an awful time. Don't drink, kids. Drink's not good. Have I? I'm sure I've told you this. Have I ever told you about when I um I drank uh, 19 vodka Red Bulls? <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad if it was just Red Bull. And it, yeah, it wasn't even Red Bull. It was that, because I was a student, it was that fake one called like Red Dragon or whatever it would be called. You know, it was because it was a quid of vodka Red Bull at yeah. Fifth Avenue in Manchester. Right, okay. And then I walked home pissed from the bus stop at 3am, yeah. went down an alleyway to have a piss. <laughs> and there was like, I remember there was like a, a empty beer bottle, transparent bottle. So I ended up, I just aimed and pissed in the bottle, as you would. Bit of fun, you're, yeah. Bit of fun. You're a laugh. Then, I was, I'm going to laugh even when I'm on my own. You don't stop when the cameras stop. No, exactly. <laughs> I, I walked past it the next morning on the way to university and it was glowing. Like the colour of it. It, <laughs> oh, like, it was still there full of bits. It was still there and it was like a, a luminous yellow. Like oh I've never God. seen a colour before. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Nineteen's <laughs> pretty good going, Josh. I was back in the day, Rob, when I didn't used to get hangovers. I used to be able to do what I wanted. <laughs> Here I am now. Oh, dear. I remember I used to work at six thirty a.m. at a supermarket when I was down in Canterbury studying, and because it was a student town, you, the amount of like just. Like you could see all the sick on the floor where people just been sick walking oh, over. This, this is a horrible intro. What are we doing? Who's Omid Jalili, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, please welcome Omid Jalili. We what do apologise, Omid, if you have listened to this intro, that it wasn't ideal, but you did a great job as a guest. Yeah. So everyone enjoy this rather than what's just happened. Right, here's Omid Jalili. Welcome to the podcast, Omid Jalili. Very excited. Omid, children, talk to me. How many have you got? How old are they? I have three children and they are all in their 20s. Oh, oh all grown up. Yeah, they're older now. Does that feel like you're... Is out the woods is the right word to use? Do you feel like each day you're still a parent? You know, is it playing on your mind as much as it did? He's out the woods. He's started a logging company. <laughs> it's deforestation that's going on there. That's a very good question. You know, most comics, when you have children... And I, I became like a paid comic... When my daughter, my first child's daughter, when she was about two and a half, around 1997, 98. Ooh. And then I had two more kids. So I had three kids by 2000. So I was doing jonglers. I was doing all those gigs. And comics usually talk about their children. Like as you, you grow with that comic, they talk mm. about my, my children now three, four. And then you realize comics do it because their children are a tax deductible commodities <laughs> yeah. we're happy to do that because it saves us some money because it's part of our you know part of our job and our material but it is very difficult i think we should talk about that because how old are your kids now your kids are five and seven okay so five and seven rob and josh two and five okay all right so look this is when i was starting out it's very very difficult and i had so many experiences of coming home late Waking up early. Yeah. And actually, that's not good for you. I mean, I, I remember there was a journey. I came back from Liverpool and I had to be home, had to drive home from Liverpool because there was something I had to do at the school and I had to pick up my kid. You know, it's always. So I'm driving back. And you know that bit of the M6? There are no lights. And around Wolverhampton, there are lots of lights. Yeah. <laughs> on the M6 and yeah. I was so tired I was hallucinating. I when I felt the reflections from the lights, it looked like there were pterodactyls flying at me. So yeah. as I'm driving along, I'm slapping myself to keep myself awake and kind of going, yeah, slap. And then I saw this pterodactyl and I ducked. I ducked <laughs> oh, a few times. I just started oh ducking. God. And then this blue light came on and the police took me to one side. They said, sir, do you know how fast you were going? I said, look, I'm a comic. I'm trying to get home. I'm tired. Was I going 90, 100? He goes, no, you were doing 10 miles an hour in the middle lane. Oh, no. Oh, my this is God. Like midnight. And he goes, we were next to you driving for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and I could see it. it was only when you ducked. It must be. I suddenly ducked. I said, did you see the pterodactyls as well? <laughs> and they said, Breath breathalyze them. So they breathalyze me. And yeah. then they said, you're just tired. And actually, to give the police credit, they said, follow us. We're going to take you to a service station. We want you to sleep. Yeah. Just sleep. And then I slept. And I, unfortunately, I slept till six. And I missed the thing. And everyone was upset with me. But actually, you realize to be a dad, to have a family. And if you're going to have a family, you want to be a good dad. You want to raise your kids well. It is really taxing on the body. So I remember 
I actually developed this problem called sleep apnea. Sleep apnea where I have to oh, sleep yeah, with a yeah, sleep yeah. machine and you have a mask on. And of course the kids would think it was funny. So <laughs> my young son, age five, would come in as I'm waking up and he'd lift the mask off my face. And of course the machine goes into overdrive. You go, and it goes, it goes like that and he goes, let's go. He goes, hits my face. I go, ah! And I look back and I just see the leg of a child running away. You know, and I think that you never got any sleep. That was the one thing. And that's, I started getting acid reflux because I was sleeping. And then I remember once coming home, then I got home two, three in the morning and I ordered a pizza and I watched television with a pizza. And my daughter came down at age seven, woke me up at 6.30 and said, you're a disgrace because I'd fallen asleep <laughs> with my clothes. And I think BBC Two was raging. There was something yeah. I was watching and I had like, Pizza all over my beard. I remember she just learned the word. She goes, "You're a disgrace." And I said, "How did you learn the word disgrace? Who taught you? Did your mum teach you that? <laughs> Who taught you the word disgrace?" So one thing people don't get is actually it is physically taxing. But I'm very proud that actually, if you put the time in, my kids in their twenties and they're all actually doing quite well. And I, I like all three of them now. So actually, it, it is a balance in life. Life is always, yeah. always a balance about your quality of life, your career, your family life. And if one of them drops, all three of them drop. Yeah. So I'm very proud and happy that I did spend a bit of time with my kids because I actually like them. I actually like my kids. Yeah, that's the weird thing. In their 20s, you're both adults, right? Yeah. It's quite a good way of putting I like them is because obviously you then have a relationship with them where they're on a kind of level with you. You're not like, oh, they're a five-year-old or, oh, they're going through the teenage years or, oh, they're, you know, dealing with this. It's like, these people are grown-ups. Yes. Would I be friends with these people? And they're going to overtake us yeah. and be in charge of us. They're much better. They're already way, way ahead of us. And I have to tell you that on the one hand, I have a daughter and two boys and the two boys are now as they were growing up, I'm showing them pictures of myself when I was their age and they look exactly like me. I mean, it's somebody, I used to have hair and I used to be thinner. And so they look at me and they're thinking, wow, if we looked like this guy when he was like 19, 20, I said, yeah, this is what you're going to look like. And they are so horrified. So when they used to come home and I'd be sat in my pants watching telly with my legs up, and they'd come in, they goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm being you in 30 years time. This is you. <laughs> and they are so horrified that they are going to look like me. And so, so we have that relationship. But another thing I will say, as they've all, they're all adults now, and I listen to them because they have opinions on stand-up comedy. They have opinions on, like once we're in the car, we just come back from, driving back from the Auburn Arena, the St. Albans, they've come, the whole family come to see me. And nobody said a word. It was a great show and it was standing ovation. I said, there's no one going to say anything. We'd like got, we got to the outskirts of London. I said, we've been driving for half an hour. No one said, well, are you going to say something? And I think my middle son, who was about 16 at the time, he said... Um, Mind out for that pterodactyl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ducked a few yeah. times. Anyone going to say anything? Why well, Dad keep ducking? Sorry, sorry. I'm... I don't mind anyone seeing it. <laughs> Speed up. You're going 10 miles an hour on the M25. <laughs> but they said to me... Um, they said, you know, you do a few bits that we don't particularly like and it's a bit filthy and it's a bit... And I said, is that a problem? And they said, well, and this is very interesting because put it this way, if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, which they had been with me a few times, that's one thing I wish I hadn't spoiled them. They said, if you go to a Michelin star restaurant, they bring you a wonderful meal, but there's a little bit of shit on the side of the plate. Would you eat that food? I went, no, I'd take it back, clean it off. 
or give me a new plate. They goes, well, that's how we feel about your stand-up. You know, it's a lovely meal. They're little bits of shit. It just ruined the whole thing. And I went, oh, oh my God, God, that would destroy me. It did destroy me. It destroyed me because it, it actually made me realize that in comedy, this is why we can do gigs and we're having a wonderful time. And as comics, everyone's laughing, but we always hone in on the one person not enjoying it. Or have you had a show where you're loving a show, then you do one joke and a couple of people get up and leave? I've never had that, Ahmed. I've never had that. How dare you? You've never had that. Okay, well, you're not a proper comic then. <laughs> I know, oh course. no, I'm getting flashbacks of Edinburgh. That was horrible. Yeah. So you realise actually comedy in general, what you learn, we can't please all the people all the time and people have a right to be offended. But the fact that even my own children were saying, you could be so good, <laughs> but you're not. And we won't bring our friends to see you and we're not really proud of you and you just look oh, like... Oh, no. What? How old were they at this point? They're in their mid-teens. They're old enough Oh, that's to... never ask a teenager for a feedback. <laughs> but do you know what? I brought it up with them now and they stand by their comments. It's interesting. So was it the in general your stuff or was it more that like... And I, I wanted to speak about this as well. It was like, as you get older, you know, everyone's views and stuff get a bit dated because that's just what, like, you know, you don't experience new things with a younger generation and way more woke and across social change. Yes. Would it be things like that where you might use a turn of phrase that is fine, but actually a little bit, that's not what you use anymore? Or was it just the material and the performance in general? Because yes. I think that's what your kids can help you with. And they do, yeah. Actually, that's a very good point. That As they got older, they're very aware of not just woke culture, but even things that you've missed somehow. So in that sense, they were right. So I dropped the joke and they often come and watch and they, they give the odd tip like that, which I think is very, very helpful. But in general, it's interesting because they say, look, the dad we see at home is so funny, but the dad we see on stage is very different. It's like you're trying to please people and you're trying to be a Middle Eastern bloke in white society. Yeah. And there's a part of us we're not comfortable with that. So we wish you could be more like the way you were at home. I think that's the thing. That's what pleased me. They thought I was much funnier off stage than on and I said, well, it is an act. That's the whole point. Yeah. Doing stand up is an act. It's what you choose to put out. But they said, yeah, we're just not comfortable with it. So we, we hope, Dad, <laughs> when they're 14, a child goes, we hope, Dad, you find your inner authenticity and that can be shown one day. <laughs> That's the kind of thing they say. But at the same time, you see, I was very lucky that I got to work with someone of the calibre of Whoopi Goldberg, who then one day just turned around to me and just said, you know, you must never stop doing stand-up. I said, why? Because you're the first person from your background doing it. You're like the Richard Pryor of brown people. And I said, I said, what are you talking about? She goes, yeah, but you're also 30 years behind where the black community is. We had Richard Pryor, we had Eddie Murphy, we had a bunch of people who I suppose were trailblazers and started something mm. off. In a sense, you're the same. So actually you should take comedy very seriously because it's very responsible. So actually also watch your material because people are watching it very carefully. And then when I told my kids that, they went, yes, yes, that's the thing. That's what you don't mm. get. I don't think you get how important you are for your region of people because there had been very few people. And I'll tell you no. a funny story. And we can mention his name because he doesn't mind me mentioning him. Do you know, anyone know Smashy from um, South End? Do you know Smashy? We used to run no. these Smashy. comedy clubs. No. Smashy in the 90s used to run Churchill's in um, South End and he had a couple of comedy clubs. And <laughs> he'd seen me in 1996. And he said, he goes, you, my, my office now, we'll talk to you. And it, it was proper stuff. He goes, do you know what thing is? You're great, you are. But your name, Majajaja, I can't remember that. Yeah. What you need to do, get yourself a photo shoot, get yourself a turban, pantaloons, 
and curly-toed shoes, call yourself Ali Baba, oh the Sultan of Comedy, you get a lot of work, son. And I said, well, I'm... Oh, oh my word. And I started talking about, well, I'm actually very inspired by a film called My Beautiful Laundrette, which was written by Hanif Qureshi, who was... And he never changed his name, so I'd like to keep the name so people learn my name. He goes, nah, mate, nah, nah, definitely Ali Baba. And then I met him 10 years later. He was walking past the BBC, and I was about to shoot the Omid Jalili show. And he goes, hello, Omid, what are you doing here? I said, I'm doing a show. He goes... What's the show? I said, well, it's actually called the Omid Jalili show. And it's it's a primetime BBC One show. He goes, did you use the picture of yourself as Ali Baba, the Sultan of Comedy? I said, I said, no, I didn't. He goes, you would have got here five years earlier, mate. Five years earlier. <laughs> He's still stuck to that yeah. particular narrative. Do you think, though, because of the pressures of having kids, where when you broke through and there was an opportunity to talk about the stuff you wanted to talk about rather than sort of just getting, you know, booked on stuff and making that sort of demographic laugh, do you think that like maybe if you didn't have the kids and that pressure to provide, you may have been able to take a bit more like chances with what you was putting out? That's a really good question. I think the whole aspect of wanting to provide is very powerful for comics because soon you realise you're doing all these terrible pub gigs and someone sticking a tenor in your hand saying, well, that's the, you know, that's, that's the door split. And you think, well, who are those guys making a lot of money? And then you've got Dominic Holland doing brilliant jokes. Like they say kids change your life. In my case, they ruined it. And it gets a big laugh and you think, oh, okay, so... Tell you what, that didn't work out for him as, as it did, though, did it? Because That's so funny, It turned out his <laughs> yeah. son's actually uh, set him up for life. Set him up completely for life. So, <laughs> so that joke has come back to bite him in the arse. That's so funny. <laughs> it's such a funny thing, isn't it? If, you, if people don't know, his, his son is from Holland, who's Spider-Man. It was, it's unbelievable the way that's worked out. Yeah. <laughs> so you start realising... Actually, having kids is what drives you. And you think, okay, I've got to get funnier. I've got mm. to get better so I can start providing. So actually, I'm very grateful that I had kids early on in my stand-up career because it was always about, we're doing this for the love of it. We're doing it because we love laughs. and We're pretty damaged individuals. and We, <laughs> we need the laughter of strangers to validate our very existence in life. But actually, the kids did help focus and did help you have more of a plan and make decisions mm. about what what's the right show to do and what's the wrong show. I'm just really interested because obviously we're talking about this in a comedy sense, but were your parents, I don't know when they came over, but you're from Iranian background, right? So yes. what was your house like growing up? Was it just for me and the listeners? Are you first generation? Yes. Yeah, I've got a brother in his mid-60s. They came in 58. And so how did their parenting differ from your parenting? Because that's like the hugely different kind of cultures you've grown up in, presumably. Yeah, it's very difficult to talk about one particular culture because I'm a British Iranian, parents are Iranians, so I'm already, you know, a bit of a minority. British Iranian. Then even within the Iranian community, I'm, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Baha'i. And the Baha'i faith is very different from the way Muslims are. So I'm actually a minority within a minority and even within the Baha'i community, my parents have seen it as a bit weird. So I'm, I'm actually a minority within a minority within a minority. So You're a hipster. I'm a real hipster. <laughs> Why were your parents seen as a bit weird? Because we had this guest house and we lived in a block of flats, which was a big six bedroom flat, which um, then after the Iranian revolution of 1979, a lot of Iranians used to come over to get medical help. And they would come and stay with us because it was more homely and it was cheap. So I was raised in a guest house where there was no differentiation between the work life and the family life. So we were all just together. So the house was filled with Iranian men and women walking around in pajamas, the radios on, the tellies on, 
food as a buffet on all the time. It was like a like a kind of party, but a mm. conference. There's always yeah. like 15, 16 people in the house. Wow. And I saw my father using humor. He kept saying, what you've got to do is make them laugh because if they laugh more, it has a palliative effect and they feel better and then they get better and they leave and we get more clients. So he'd always like, how would you like your eggs are also another word for balls. So for bollocks, he would say, how would you like your bollocks <laughs> fried, scrambled or fondled? It was always jokes like that. And everyone was laughing. So I learned very early on that actually that upbringing was perfect for stand up comedy because you're always talking to people, you're always hearing stories and you realize storytelling is the most powerful thing, especially with a punchline or especially with something funny. And even my parents used to make up jokes. I remember my mother, my mother, I said, why is that funny? And she teach joke construction. She goes, you see the way, the way a joke works, Ahmed, is that you, you do a setup of something that's relatable to people. <laughs> yeah. And then you tell the story and at the end, there's something surprising they wouldn't expect. And I was like 10, 11 being trained. She was basically wow. training me. So when you take over the business, you've got to write your own jokes to keep with, with the idea of making people feel better. So they yeah. leave and you get a bigger turnaround of people coming around. Right. So you'd be like, take on the company and the job and be the funny guy welcoming yeah. all these people. So they keep coming back. Yeah. To be sociable and to be funny. Then I realized actually my brother didn't want to do that. My sister didn't want to do it. And I, I was damned if I was going to do it. Yeah. But then I went to, uh, my, my wife actually took me to the comedy store in 1994. So what did you remember, do before comedy, Ahmed? What was your... Well, I was a struggling actor and I was yeah. doing, you know, we lived in the former Czechoslovakia as well between 1990 and 95. <laughs> so I was doing, I was doing experimental theatre <laughs> for about five years. <laughs> so crazy. And then we had children, we came back, my mother got cancer and she died. So we had to come back and look after my dad. So it was about quickly learning this tool of stand-up comedy because you could probably do this. It's probably the only time a partner has suggested partners hate their partners being stand-up comedians. It's like such a terrible job for it's, it's you feel so insecure. But I was actually encouraged to do it, and I used all those skills from the home life. And how different was your children's upbringing then from your upbringing? Was it vastly different, or what did you take from your parents' kind of upbringing when you were bringing up your kids? Oh, completely. Well, the first thing I didn't let lots of people stay in the house because I didn't feel, I, didn't, I, I felt we should have a very private life and they all yeah. had a proper education, whereas mine was a bit haphazard. And I was very much, because I was the youngest child in that milieu of people, I was left alone to, to my own devices. I, I often said to my parents, you just let me, you're quite strict with my brother and sister but with me they said oh we just gave up we don't really understand British just let go. I used to come home at six in the morning I used to nick my dad's car when I was 15 and drive around London and and all he'd say is if you're gonna nick the car could you put it back in the same place go and walk around like a twat for half an hour looking for it so they kind of understood yeah that I should be left alone so very laid back with me extremely laid back and I never forget my on her deathbed, my mum just had said, you're a very easy child and, you know, we just trusted you all right and we left you to God and I'm so glad that you've got a career now and uh, as long as you're not upset with me. I said, no, it was like wonderful to do what I liked because, yeah, I probably should have disciplined you more, but I just trusted you and it was all fine. So it was a very lax kind of upbringing when, in fact, the Baha'i community is very strong on upbringing and children and education of children. But for some reason, I think they just were so beaten down by all these people, they didn't bother with me. But yeah, it was very different. So my kids' upbringing was very controlled. Make sure they're always dressed well. I mean, once I remember my parents had a note saying, we've noticed Omid has been wearing the same clothes for the whole academic year. Does he have any other clothes? Because I come in, I just like this blue polo neck top. 
And the teacher said, you've worn that every day for the first two terms. I said, I like it. So they, they <laughs> sent my parents things. Does he actually wash? Does he, you know, because oh, wow. I don't think I bothered. I didn't brush my teeth or anything. So ah, oh, really? Yeah, I didn't do anything. And, and then my parents felt so ashamed because we just taken our eye off the ball. We're so sorry. Then I started having to brush my teeth when I was nine. <laughs> and I started wearing different clothes. I thought, well, I, I thought I could wear the same clothes. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> You're like Steve Jobs. You're ahead of time. I probably was. You know, Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day. You were that guy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and are you quite strict with yeah. your kids now then? I mean, were you strict with them with schooling and stuff like that? If they'd nicked your car and driven it around London. Oh, there's no way that would have happened. Yeah. I was very lucky. There was a bit like good cop, bad cop. Raising My wife was really strong with the kids. And, and I, I was there. But, you know, also as a comic, you're away a lot of the time. Yeah. So How much were you away for then? Because your career was really like hitting off and getting mega and like mega films, stuff you just cannot say no to. Yes. They must have been at a like, young age where that's when you want to spend time with them the most. Did you find yourself away a lot then? Yes, there was one year I was, wasn't there at all. I did the sitcom with Whoopi Goldberg in New York and they stayed in London because they didn't want to take the kids out of school. And then I immediately, I did three films on the trot. So about a year and four months. Wow. I was pretty much away, coming home the odd weekend. And what was that like? Not good at all. I don't think it's good for family life. I think the most important thing is that you're there for your kids and you spend time with them. How did you stay in touch with them in those days? Because obviously there's no FaceTime. There's no FaceTime. Like, how does it work? You have a phone call. Phone call once every few days. Here's daddy on the phone. But it was like... Daddy on the phone's not that important, so it no. wasn't really like, hello, everyone good? And, and it disrupts the family disrupts, dynamic yeah. and all the schedule. So I just used to come home and try and spend three or four days at home and just so they didn't forget me. So I think I just about got away with it, but they still seemed to like me and still seemed to listen to me. But no, it's not good. How did you overcompensate? How was you overcompensating? Would you be like trying to do like mad toy shop trips and days out and then go off again for a few months? Or you trying to bet too hard? Yeah, just lots of dancing. I play some music and I come and dance in my pants for them and just do stupid they'd be laughing their heads off i'd try to be the entertaining dad yeah yeah so they wouldn't hate me kind of thing so they did <laughs> think i was very funny oh, yeah but uh, but also i did try and get involved i remember rob bryden he had his kids at the same school so we used to we were both very very busy and we often i talk about it we drop our kids off and go for a walk and a coffee and say we need to spend time more with our kids and they're like sports day we've got to be there at sports day yeah and my kids were so embarrassed because there was the father's race and i was doing joke kind of like groin stretches and things but we were clearly the least fit so as 20 dads ran off i just looked at him i said we can steal this so as he ran he ran ahead of me and i just rugby tackled him and then we just were fighting every time I got up, he'd pull me back, and then he'd get up, I'd pull him back, and it all became about us. And all the other parents were just shaking my kids, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> You're supposed to be here for us, but you made it all about you. And I said, Yeah, but was it funny? God. It was funny, though, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it was funny. <laughs> so you're, you're a good footballer though, aren't you, Ahmed? Yes, I've just retired from playing football. I've just put out a little video. Oh. So I've stopped playing, but I did enjoy it. I think football was also, I will say to anyone who's raising kids, playing Sunday football was the one thing I appreciated where I just switched off from everything. And for 90 minutes, I thought of literally nothing but football, and that's yeah. very healthy. So if you have any kind of sport thing you do as a parent, I really, um, really recommend it. Yeah, it's that exercise every week and you can switch off and stuff. Yeah, Did yeah. your kids get into football? You're a big Chelsea fan. Did you take them? And yes. is that a bond you've still got? Because a lot of people say that going to football is a good family connection that you can do as they get older. Yeah, especially with my middle child. 
my middle child, he played football and he was a big Chelsea fan and we, we were season ticket holders. I go with him when I can. My middle child was probably the more talented footballer. And then he uh, kept scoring these worldies in the last minute for his school football team. And they got to what's called the S for Cup final, which is the English schools final. And they, they won it in the it was a game at Reading. And the winning goal was scored with an overhead kick. And then um, my son, age 16, suddenly announced his retirement. He goes, I'm announcing my retirement. I said, what are you talking about? You're a school footballer. You know, I've achieved everything I, I want now, and um, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to retire. And he's actually retired. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, he's kicked the ball about three or four times. He's still really? got it, but he just he doesn't want to play. Wow. He was also embarrassed because I got so into his career and I was screaming. Oh, oh were no, you? Were you one of those touchline dads? Yeah, I'm afraid oh, the whole discussion oh, started no. because of me, something I did uh, with my... What did you do? Oh, God, this is... You should never do this. is really not good. And he was playing in a league and we live in East Sheen and my son was playing for Barnes mm, yeah. next to it and Barnes were playing East Sheen. It's a big local derby. And they had this American woman who was the manager, very nice woman, but she never really trained them. She just said, okay, we're one half time. Let's get those oranges around and let's switch it up. Let's bring on substitutes. And she, yeah. they were a good team, but they never got team talk. So they'd always get beat, but they were quite good. And so for the big game, I said to my son, look, do you want me to give a team talk? He goes, I don't think that's not right. She's a woman. It's not right for your dad. Yeah. I said, well, you give me the sign. You give me a sign and I'll say, so they're losing 2-0 at half time. And she goes, okay, everyone, let's fall in. Let's get those oranges out. And he just, he just, he just well designed. He looked at me like that and he went, do it. Oh. I said, um, excuse me, do you mind if I have a quick word with the lads? Oh, said, yeah, sure. Oh, sure, God. go ahead. Oh, go God. ahead. I said, right, lads, gosh, come in here. I said, gosh, you've got to get in hard from the kickoff. Get the ball out to Sam. Sam's quick. You flood the area. And I said to my son, I said, you, you got to let him know you're there. He's getting past you. So let him know you're there. Be strong in the first tackle. So they kicked off, score immediately. Because I lose in two more. I was going, come on, lads, let's get one more. Kick off again, immediately get the ball. Score a second goal. I said, you can't do this. You come on. And people said, could you calm down? I said, they're going to win this. They're going to win this. And then there was the slide tackle went in and my son takes this boy out and he doesn't get up. And I, was, I, was, I said, nice one, show me it there, like that. And the kid doesn't get up. And the referee is looking back at me. And um, his parent says, he's broken his leg. Are you happy now? And I said, what's going on? And my son's crying, everyone's crying. And I said, I said what's happening here? Because he's broken his leg like that. So I just walked away. So I'm walking oh away God. and there's an ambulance coming on the field. And my wife's coming back. She goes, what's going on? I said, just turn back and walk. Just don't say a word. Oh, no. <laughs> we went back. And I got banned. I got banned from coming because apparently I was inciting oh violence. Oh. I didn't know. I, they were like, say, he was on the side saying, get in oh, hard. No, but you didn't know that he'd hurt no. his leg when you said good tackle. And, and it maybe was a, overdid it. Yeah. I'm just, I was showing passion and enthusiasm, which is what was missing. And it actually got the players fired up. And they, they still say it was the best team talk they've ever had. I'm very happy. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And at least your son said it was okay to do the team talk. I thought you were going to say, he said no, but you just bowled in and did the team talk. But I, I would have done it anyway. <laughs> I think, you know, obviously it's terrible that boy hurt his leg and stuff like that. But, I, you know, I played football, the comedian's football. I rolled yes. my ankle and got tackled by Andy Zaltzman. And it was a strong tackle. But it wasn't an unfair tackle. And I snapped all my ligaments and was in a cast for like six months. So it, it does happen at football. Yeah. When you're playing with someone as tough and rough and tumble as Andy Zaltzman, it's difficult, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> 
let's talk to you about your podcast, Please Tell Me a Story, which is a great concept. I wasn't aware of this. Yes. This is a great concept, Dominic. So, well, it's better if you explain the concept than me because it's your podcast. It would be very rude to get you on, interview you, and not let you talk about your podcast. Tell us how this works. Well, the way it works, it's it's about the evolution of storytelling. So someone tells a story, which you tell to one comic, who then... Then I then if I tell a story to you, yeah. then I'll leave. Then you tell the story to Rob. Yeah. Then you leave. Then Rob will tell the story to Ivor Dambina. Then Rob leaves. And at the end, after five goes, the last person tells a story back to me. So if you tell a story, like we all know as comics, start off with something good, good middle bit, interesting, and a great ending to a story. So you'd think that's why we're comedians. Yeah. I'm sure, Rob, if I told you a joke now, you'd listen to it, you'd laugh, and then you could probably tell that joke back because you would understand what the joke is. Mm. A lot of people, even when you're telling the story, they do this. They're looking at you, and then their eyes just look to one side. You don't know, they're thinking about dinner that night or something. For a moment, they've lost concentration. Yeah. I've done enough podcasts with Rob. We both know the look in each other's <laughs> yeah, eyes. Exactly. <laughs> I never listen to anything more than when someone's telling me a joke. And in fact, I'm very lucky that because I've done that radio show, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, mm. I'm on what used to be called the phone list, where Barry Cryer would ring you up and just tell a joke because he believed that joke telling was very important. And he goes, comedy keeps your brain sharp, it keeps your heart young, and we've got to keep telling jokes to each other. And these guys in their 80s are still telling jokes. So I get Barry Cryer ring me up and I'd listen intently and I could tell that joke back straight away to someone. And I think that's the process they have for comics. So... But here, when you're working with comics who maybe are a bit self-obsessed or comics who are worried about their own story. That's all of them, isn't it? <laughs> all, but it's, it is amazing where you'd think comics would tell a story back. I told a story when I told it back, it was unrecognisable. And I was so disappointed. But they had added some extra funny things in there. So there was a guy in the first series, Kai Samra. I talked about my uncle, Ezzat. And then I think the next one down, he goes, his uncle Dave. This Iranian name just yeah. <laughs> became Dave. So it's amazing how information gets lost. So the podcast is about fake news. It's about embellishments. It's about what is entertaining. Can you make an entertaining story better? Usually not. Uh, but the really good stories you find come back to you shaved down. Yeah. But there were some stories which are just very complicated, came back as completely different. So it is actually a very interesting and fascinating look at the way stories get filtered down. And and is each episode a different telling of the story or they're all in one? No, no, no. Each series is one person telling a story and then you hear oh, that's good. everyone telling that same story. And it's absolutely fascinating because yeah. people listen to it and go, no, no, this is my, is that the most important bit? You know, people shouting. So it's actually teaching people about storytelling, which I think is fascinating. Brilliant. Please tell me a story. Yes. And it's, we should say this is available on all good podcast outlets, mm. such as Spotify. Um, do your children listen to the podcast, Omid? No. Actually, my youngest did. Yeah. He listened to the very first one and he thought it was really funny. Yeah. Oh, that's good. He goes, I'll tell you what, it is really, because it's very chaotic. And the second series, there was a review saying it's brilliantly and gloriously chaotic because we're all shouting at each other. Because at the end, we come back and talk about what happened. And that is the most chaotic bit of podcasting. <laughs> we have six comics arguing about who said what. Oh, God. And then it all broke <laughs> oh, down. Have any of your children... Because obviously you're so passionate about storytelling, jokes, comedy, and this has come from your parents, you know. Arguably, they've instilled that in you. Have any of your children taken this on with them, like in their careers? Well, one thing I will say, storytelling is a big part of their lives. And they always say, oh, we really miss you 
reading Asterix books to us because I do I do all the I would do all the voices and but actually they've all gone into like my middle son who loved Asterix he's now a film director he's 27 I have my daughter who's 30 now she's a film editor she edits films and my youngest son is a musician and an actor so they've all gone into the business in one sense because their love of it and they're all at the beginning of their careers. So, yes, I think they're doing all right, yeah. Oh, it's exciting. Oh, that must be so exciting. It, it is exciting because we do have differences of opinions, but, but we also we share the same love and passion for it. It's what your parents wanted to do, but you've done it in the entertainment world yes, rather than yes. the guest house world. And it's not just that. I've now realised that on my father's side, they were all um, travelling poets. They were all poets in around oh, really? the turn of the 19th, sorry, uh, 20th century. Between 1899 and 1910, there were a group of poets. A bit, It'd be like five comics going on the road yeah, and just literally pitching up somewhere. They put a tent out. They give out a couple of leaflets. There'll be a performance here of just poetry, poetry and comedy and storytelling. So that's what they used to do. And it was my great, great, great grandfather used to do that. So it's in the blood as oh, well. Oh, wow. Do you know what? Your your podcast all comes around to tie up at the end and you've done it for us here, Omid. We always end with the same question. <laughs> Last question, Omid. It's basically, so what is the one thing that your partner does, parenting-wise, that does or used to drive you mad? And if they listened back, they'd go, yeah, fair enough, actually, he's got a point. And then what is the one thing she does where you go, she's so amazing and incredible. I'm, I'm so lucky to have children with her. You can answer them in whichever order you choose. Well, I take the last question first because it was the eternal patience where you just want to grab a kid and say, are you, are you fucking kidding me? When are you going to do this? <laughs> and she was always very loving and like, I understand why you do this, but, you know, we don't really do that. And it was just the eternal patience where I was never patient. Yeah. I just used to, and I don't think it's right. I used to scream and shout and get pissed off and say things because you always feel I'm thick-skinned and I'm a comic and I deal with truth and honesty straight away but I don't think with little children you should do that oh man that was brilliant thank you so thank much thank you so much podcast is called Please Tell Me a Story and it's available everywhere thank you Omid Jalili cheers Omid thank you guys Omid Jalili there we go I love him such a good bloke. Lovely bloke. If I do sports day, I'm keeping my head down. I'm not making a scene, Rob. <laughs> that was mad. But I, I do think that's a, an old, an older comic generation thing like that. The mad noughties of just like, yeah, let's go and do that. Well, I just, yeah. I don't know. Whereas me and you are like, I'm going to turn up to sports day and I don't want anyone to reference that I'm a comedian at any point. I'm just going to keep my head down. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. That would be remarkable. If someone punched me at sports day, I'd just leave. If someone rugby tackled me. <laughs> if you're listening, anyone that's kids go to Josh's school, smack him and he'll go over. And now I've got fucking grass stains on my jeans. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. Right. right, see you Tuesday, Josh. See you Tuesday, bye. Politics. Sport. Climate change. Culture wars. I'm Jack D. And I'm Sean Walsh. These are just some of the things we won't be talking about in our podcast, Oh My Dog. Not that we we couldn't if we wanted to. Oh, of course. Of course we could. Obviously. We're both well known for our scathing satire and social commentary, but we've decided to set that aside to talk about our favourite subject. Dogs. Do you let your dogs kiss you on the face? Tiggy and Molly will nibble you to your lobe. Oh, Jack likes that. Jack likes that. I mean, from Dolly. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded like Jack likes me doing that. Old French bulldog, Professor Snowball, 
If he can't see us in the house, you'll hear this horrible noise. <laughs> there was once when Jane and I, we locked the bedroom door, we thought there was a man in the house. As <laughs> we heard him shout, no! Give me one sec. Grace, is Mildred chipped? Oh, yeah, no, of course she is. No, she is chipped. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you'd be good if, if Grace could do the programme because you know, <laughs> <laughs> seems to know more about what's going on. Join us on our podcast, Oh My Dog. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at omdpod. Pod.